Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. What does the Bible say about infant baptism? Now, this is uh, part four of our five-part series looking at this particular question. Uh, in uh, the first three parts, we looked at some of the foundational doctrines and arguments for infant baptism. These had to do with continuity of the covenant, such that we can see that baptism is the new circumcision. If if children had a right to, ba- to circumcision in the old covenant, then they have a right to baptism in the new. And then we looked at the distinction between the invisible and the visible church, just to show that uh, what is being granted is the outward privileges. So just as in the old covenant, there were the outward privileges that were granted to, to the children of believers. That was not exactly the same as salvation. It was not the same as salvation. So too, in the new covenant, there is uh, a category of someone who has the outward blessings without necessarily the inward reality. And uh, this this category of having the outward blessings, and really, we're not even commenting on whether or not they have the inward reality. They're supposed to, there is always a link between the inward and the outward. But if someone has a right to the outward, then they are to receive the outward sign. Uh, our children... Uh, have have a right to call God as their God, and from an outward sense, they are truly set aside as the people of God in the Old Testament, and so they're truly set aside uh, for God in the New Testament as well. Even as Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children to our to all who are far off. A, a clear reference uh, to the the reality that's found throughout all of the Bible, which is that God does include our children uh, in the covenant. This is why the Apostle Paul calls them holy in 1 Corinthians 7. So we've looked at some of these foundational arguments. The goal here in part three, in part four, will be to address uh, some of the arguments that the, that Baptists, that Credo Baptists make in, in defense of their position. Now we've alluded to some, uh, obviously, in uh, the uh, argumentation to this point, but we'll look at two in particular that are given kind of independently of the the uh, the Pado Baptist arguments as as I've laid them out. And these two are first that in the example of the Book of Acts, the apostolic example for how to and when to perform uh, baptisms, we see this pattern of faith and then baptism. So there's a profession of faith, and then there is baptism, and uh, there is no example of any other pattern, and therefore we must follow the apostolic example and require a confession of faith before baptism. That's the first argument. Secondly, we'll look at the argument from Jeremiah 31, the, the famous New Covenant passage, where it says that all will know the Lord. So the idea here is that um, we, we at the very least, cannot see that our children know the Lord. Most Baptists will actually go further and say that our children do not know the Lord. They've not made profession of faith. There's no sense in which we can say they believe, and therefore uh, they can't be members of the New Covenant because Jeremiah says that the New Covenant uh, requires that all people uh, know the Lord. And that's actually, in fact, what will be the great sign of the New Covenant is this the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, all people know the Lord. Our children do not know the Lord, therefore they are not to be baptized. So those are the two main arguments that we, we will look at uh, here. Now, the first argument has to do with, again, apostolic example. Now, uh, there are really uh, two problems with this uh, particular argument. Uh, first is that even if we grant that every baptism was, in fact, on the basis of a confession of faith, which which we don't, uh, but if we did, even then there would be a logical fallacy known as negative inference, the negative inference logical fallacy. Uh, that would show that it is actually insufficient to prove that we should not baptize our children. Uh, so there's a logical fallacy in the argumentation. But then secondly, we would then say um, that that, that uh, particularly with the household baptisms, that uh, it's far from clear that uh, every baptism was uh, administered on the basis of uh, of a confession of faith. 
So, so taking the first part again, even if we were to grant that every single baptism in, in the New Covenant in the in the New Testament follow this pattern of confession of faith baptism, we would still say it is insufficient to prove that uh, someone. Uh, that we ought not to baptize our children. And this is, again, because of the logical fallacy known as a negative inference. And th this fallacy works like this. Positive examples of something are not sufficient. And it is actually a logical fallacy to say that the negative counterpart is ruled out. So just because... Just, just because... Uh, all the examples in the New Testament, again, we don't we don't concede this, but just because all the examples in the New Testament are that baptism follows a confession of faith, this does not mean that there is not some other reason why a confession of why a why baptism could be administered. So, for instance, and this this really shows the weakness of the argument. Um, if we were to look at these examples, the question that a Presbyterian could return to a Baptist or a, a Pado Baptist could return to a Credo Baptist is this: uh, What example of baptism? In the New Testament, would a would a Presbyterian or a Pado Baptist not follow the apostles on? And the answer would be zero. Uh, the The reality is, for everyone who is outside the covenant, who wants to come into the church, we would require a, a profession of faith followed by baptism in order for that person to get into the the new uh, covenant church. And so, this is following exactly the pattern that the, that the Baptists are speaking. However, what we are saying is there is another reason to baptize. Uh, a person, and that is if the person is a child uh, of a believer. So the positive example of baptizing after a profession of faith is not sufficient to say that there is there can be no other possible reason uh, why we should baptize another. Uh, and one example of this, this actually comes from, ironically, from a, a D.A. Carson who is a who takes the credo Baptist position, so the, so the Baptist position on baptism, we should only baptize at their profession of faith. He actually notes this logical fallacy in his book on exegetical fallacies, and he gives the example of of uh, just how this works. So if we were to say all Orthodox Jews believe in Moses, a positive example, everyone who falls into the category of Orthodox Jew, they believe in Moses. And then if we were to say then that this person is not an Orthodox Jew, it would not follow that the person does not believe in Moses. Because if if that person is a Christian, he also believes in Moses. There can be another reason to believe in Moses besides being an Orthodox Jew. And this is this is the problem with the Baptist argument. If we were to, to replace believing in Moses with baptizing, the idea is uh, every example of New Testament baptism, uh, you know, all Jews believe in Moses, every, every New Testament baptism is of a believer. This person is not a believer, therefore this person is not to be baptized. The, the, the problem is, is there could be another reason why someone is in fact to be baptized. And we, and I would say there is another reason. That is that if someone is a child of someone who's already a believer, they have a right to the blessings of the covenant. Now, so that there, so the the example, in fact, does not hold. The 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 argument from the apostolic example is logically insufficient to prove what a Baptist is trying to prove. It suffers from the logical fallacy known as negative inference. Secondly, we do not grant that it is in fact the case that every New Testament example uh, is only of credo uh, baptism. You, you in fact have to, the only way to get to that conclusion is to to engage in another logical fallacy, which is circular reasoning. And, and this is because uh, of the 12 baptisms that are recorded in the book of Acts, three of them are household baptisms. Now, how does the Baptist get from saying that a household baptism includes every single time uh, someone, uh, the whole household believing at that point? Well, you have to, they, they usually will say, well, the examples of the other ones are that 
uh, all the other examples are of this pattern of faith and then baptism. But the problem is, is that now you're in the position where you have to assume on the basis of examples that other examples, in fact, lead to uh, to the, the, to the credo Baptist position that you have to make a profession of faith. So then the, the position of credo Baptism is supported by apostolic example. And then it also is then used to, to show that all the examples are in fact of credo Baptism. It is a big circle. And the problem with this then uh, is maybe even, even uh, more acute. We think of, it's not just a, a logical fallacy to say that every example uh, in the new Testament is in fact that of credo Baptism. It gets even worse when we think about uh, what the writer in Acts, what Luke is, is doing when he speaks of household baptisms. This is a very clear uh, allusion to uh, the practice as it was given in Genesis chapter 17. The idea of a household uh, would have been immediately understood as referring back to uh, the, the line of continuity with the Old, the Old Testament, just as the household received the blessings in the Old Covenant, so too the household in the New Covenant uh, receives the blessings. This is why Peter says, you know, again in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord your God will bring uh, near. And so that, that idea of household, the, the, the frequent inclusion of household, uh, shows that the baptism uh, is in fact, again, practiced just like circumcision. The household was circumcised, and in baptism, the household is circumcised. If someone is single, if someone does not have a household, then of course, only the individual will be baptized, and that of course will only happen at their profession of faith. And this again, so it corresponds with the apostolic uh, example. Uh, but there's there's no sense in which a Baptist can account for the inclusion of the phraseology uh, of household, and you have to really downplay uh, the way in which that that uh, language connects back uh, to uh, the Old Covenant. W what a first century uh, Christian would have heard who has a Jewish background, what he would have heard when he says that it is for your household. He, he would have immediately understood that this is a fulfillment of the promises which are given in the Old Covenant, wherein God promised to be the God of a person and his children. To the entire house, he is he is the God. Uh, and therefore, we would say that there are, in fact, examples uh, of uh, infant baptism or household baptism, as it is also called. And again, even if we were to say that there are none, we would still say it is a logical fallacy to then exclude children from being baptized. Secondly, the other main uh, argument that is used, uh, it, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. So the argument again goes like this. In the Old Covenant, uh, regardless of what you say the covenant signified or, or whatever, we would at least say that uh, in the Old Covenant, there are many people who do not believe. In the New Covenant, however, uh, particularly as it's prophesied in Jeremiah 31, there is uh, a prophecy that in the New Covenant, all will believe in God. They will all know God. So we'll, we'll read the relevant passage here from Jeremiah chapter 31, particularly the relevant uh, portion. Uh, in, uh, if we begin by in verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with those with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will give, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So, uh, Baptists look at this uh, argument and they'll say, make a very simple argument. They'll say, uh, this says that all people will know the Lord. And on the other hand, we see that our children do not know the Lord. Therefore, they are not members of the new covenant. So that's the way the argument goes. Uh, there are a number of problems with this line of reasoning, though. First, uh, 
The, the statement that every single person will know the Lord, that all will know the Lord, is not meant to be taken absolutely. If it were to be taken absolutely, we would have a very big problem because, again, we could not apply this standard to adults. We, we, we ran into this problem looking earlier at the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. And that's, this, this is just a problem in, in all of it. Um, if we were to say that everyone has to know the Lord in order to be a member of the new covenant, the problem is, is we cannot know that. We cannot see it. And therefore, we cannot baptize any adult because we cannot know for sure that they are in that, that they are in the new covenant in this sense, that they have this invisible reality of knowing the Lord. There will always be adults who make a credible profession of faith who then later fall away. And so this becomes then a great problem. That conclusion, that this, this argument have to lead you to saying that, that everyone who falls away immediately has an invalid baptism, and if they come back to faith, must be rebaptized. That is the, the necessary uh, inference that must be drawn from this conclusion. But what this passage is teaching is something different. It's not saying that every single person without distinction. There's a very similar line of reason that we use with regard to uh, the, the the doctrine of limited atonement or, or definitive atonement. Um, all does not mean all in every context. And this is very clear from this text. Um, here in this passage, uh, Jeremiah is comparing the old covenant to the new. The idea is in the old covenant, no one believed. and the new covenant, all will believe. Now, in the old covenant, it is not that none believed. Now, earlier in Jeremiah, even in this, even in, in the book of Jeremiah, he will say, you know, I went through the streets, I looked in the old, I looked in the young, I looked from this great, the strong, the poor, and I didn't find anyone who believed. And because of that, the covenant is broken. That's what, what Jeremiah is referring to now in Jeremiah 31. The covenant was broken. However, there was always a remnant. So the, the no one believing was not absolute. And in the same way, the all believing is not meant to be absolute. It's meant to mean all will believe such that Belief will be the normal thing that you encounter in the new covenant, just as unbelief was the normal thing that you encountered in the old covenant. Unbelief was normal in the old covenant, and belief is normal in the new covenant, such that the new covenant will never be broken by those who have it. In the old covenant, what Jeremiah is saying is, you've broken my covenant, now you're about to be destroyed, or you have been destroyed, you are, you, you are receiving the wrath of God. Jeremiah lived through those very days. He was, is what he's saying in this prophecy. You are receiving the wrath of God because you have broken the covenant. But there is coming a day when God will put the love of God in your heart so that all will know me. And that will lead to this covenant being unbreakable. The new covenant will be unbreakable because there will always be the normal position of faith found in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is uh, the distinction that's being made. Now, the other problem with the with the Baptist position is not it's not not just the fact that um, the word all is taken absolutely where in the context it can't mean that. The other problem is the purpose of this prophecy. Um, Baptists typically take this passage as meaning that this is the criteria for getting into the new covenant. The criteria for getting into the new covenant is faith. You must believe. You must know the Lord because the new covenant in the new covenant says that all will know the Lord. So you have a situation where uh, in the in Jeremiah's day there was the 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 lines for the covenant, the 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 boundaries for the covenant were drawn very wide, and the ones who truly know the Lord was a very small number. And Jeremiah is prophesying of better days. In Jeremiah thirty two, he will speak of uh, the Lord sovereignly putting the love of God in the hearts of His people. And then again, this is related to Jeremiah 31, all will know the Lord. So the question is, is the purpose of Jeremiah 31 to say that in the new covenant, there will be 
a new way to draw the lines of the covenant such that we simply exclude all those who do not know the Lord. So in the Old Testament, the lines are drawn very wide. There's a small number that believe. Is Jeremiah saying in the new covenant, what you're supposed to do is draw the line such that everyone knows the Lord who's a part of the covenant and everyone else you exclude? Or is he saying that the lines will be drawn the same way and rather than there being a very small number that actually believe, the number that believe will be very, very large. It will begin to approximate the lines as they are drawn. Uh, it, the, the, the answer is clearly the latter. The purpose of, of the prophecy is not to say that we're going to restrict the blessings of the covenant such that now there is a more one-to-one correspondence between believers within the covenant uh, uh, and the actual line drawn of the covenant, the actual boundaries of the covenant, so to speak, those who, who are truly a part of the covenant. The, the, the goal of the prophecy is to say, listen, you look around, you see that, that this covenant people, that many of them are rejecting God. There's coming a day when God will sovereignly put the love of, of himself in the hearts of many, such that many people within the boundaries of the covenant will now believe. Such that then, the purpose is not to say that our children should be excluded because they don't know the Lord. Rather, it's to say that in the, in the new covenant, we have better grounds to think that God will convert our children and that they will know the Lord. We have better grounds. And this is actually in, in continuity with the prophecy that, that was given in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses speaks of uh, the, the, the blessing that is coming when the Messiah comes. And he says, I will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children. That is to say, when the new covenant comes, there is a better there are better grounds for us to say that our children will know the Lord than otherwise. Now, if they're excluded from the covenant because it's just now it's a requirement that you know the Lord in order to be in the covenant where our children don't know the Lord, then this offers no hope to our children. It offers no hope uh, whatsoever. But but the, the language of the covenant is actually quite different than this, even in, in the, uh, Jeremiah, right, in this very passage. Notice, uh, you will no longer teach uh, each one his neighbor saying, uh, and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. They will all know. The least even the children will know is the idea. Uh, uh, again, if you think about just receiving this in its context, would this be received as, you know, in the now my children don't know the Lord. And in the new covenant, there's coming a day where they will simply be excluded such that there will be 100% of people that know the Lord. Or, will, or would they have received this as, uh, my children may not know the Lord now, but there is coming a day when God will, in fact, cause the least to the greatest, all to know the Lord, even my children, even uh, my children. This is the, the point of this particular passage. And so, again, it actually turns this on its head. Um, Jeremiah 31, is, as, or, as well as many other passages in the Old Testament that, that deal with this, that are built on the Deuteronomy 30 passage. Deut- uh, Jeremiah 31 is related to that passage in Deuteronomy uh, 30, as is Ezekiel 36, another famous passage. These passages teach expanded grace for our children, expanded grace. In the Old Covenant, the people of God were given the outward blessings. By and large, the inward blessings were were withheld. And the the children were given the outward blessings. By and large, the inward blessings were were withheld. In the New Covenant, what Jeremiah is saying is the, the people will generally be given both the outward blessings and the inward blessings. And our children will be given, generally both the outward blessings and the inward blessings. There is a there is a, a greater chance, so to speak, uh, it is more normal for God's actions in the new covenant to include saving children, the children of believers, than in the old covenant. And that is what Jeremiah uh, is, in fact, teaching, which shows then, again, 
that these passages do nothing really to overturn the reason for us to be baptized. If anything, they uh, give us even a greater reason to baptize our children. Our children are partakers of better blessings, better blessings than uh, what is found in the Old Covenant. If they were to receive the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, surely when they have uh, the benefit of saying that God will in general circumcise the hearts of our children such that they will receive the inward blessing, surely if they have uh, that as, a, as one of their promises that, that are theirs by right, then surely they should receive the outward sign uh, in the new covenant as well. And so again, these uh, arguments that uh, are typically given are insufficient. Hopefully this is helpful for you uh, to see the reasons why we are to baptize our children and a little bit about uh, the reason why it's important. We'll look into that a little bit more as we wrap this up with part five. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.